0: We are in this series, where it's our first series, and we're trying to a- answer the question, what are we going to be about as a church? And as I've already mentioned, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of great churches that you passed on the way here, and, and we praise God for them, and we're praying for them even this morning that God would be lifted up and uh, magnified in that. But we said from the beginning, we want everything we do to be informed by, shaped by, sent by the gospel. And so last week we asked the question, what is the gospel? And we, we began to just answer the very fundamental basics of uh, that you were dead, and, but God brought you to life in Christ, and, and that fuels our worship. And today we want to look at what is worship? What, is, what does it mean to be gospel-centered in our worship? And worship flows out a, of a desire. It flows out of our thirst. It flows out of our longings. We're all thirsty at times. Uh, One of the things I love about now being back in Colorado after raising my kids in Okinawa for 10 years and then a few years in the Czech Republic, uh, I get to bring them back to where I grew up. And sometimes, depending on where we're at in the city, I get to point out things of like, when I was a kid, I did this there. And so uh, this summer, it was hot, hot summer day, and, and it, it, maybe you've taken your kids back or, or been back to where you It just springs up memories in your mind of like, oh, I remember when I was your age, and I did this there, well, this hot summer day, I'm driving with two of my kids, uh, Abby and Hannah, and uh, I'm just going past a park, and I' was like, "Hey, at that park, we used to come and play, and I was one of what would you call a latchkey kid, right? like That means your parents worked in the day, and summertime was the best. You woke up. You didn't know what the day had in store for you. There was no such thing as play dates. That's a new concept I've realized now as a parent here. You just went out knocked on your friend's door, and whatever the day held for you, that was amazing. That was awesome. and You just kind of went out for it. And so that's what we would do. We'd get up in the summertime, and we'd get on our bikes, and we'd go. And we didn't plan anything, never wore a helmet, uh, never had a, a water bottle. Model, never had a camel back, none of that stuff. we just went and we would ride as long as we were back by the time my mom got home from work you know it was it was a free game. it was free range children. Thank you very much and so um, but because we didn 't plan, had no money, had no lunch, had no food, like every now and again we 'd find ourselves in a situation where For example, you're just desperately thirsty, and I was driving up this hill with my daughters in the car, and I was like, I remember this hill. It's a small hill, but when you're eight or nine year old on your bike, it felt felt like a, a giant hill, and I was just so thirsty. I remember that, and the neighborhood was new. And people were putting in their yards, and some people had dirt yards, and some people had sprinkler systems coming up. And so I just thought, I've got to quench my thirst. And I was at the bottom of this hill, and I look up and I see some sprinklers going. And I would later learn what you do in that moment is you go to the sprinkler, you put your mouth over, it, you put your knees behind the sprinkler, put your mouth over it, and the jet shoots and kind of tears up the roof of your mouth. And you get water that way, and you taste the PVC, you taste the metal, and as a little kid, that's a legitimate option when you've done no planning and you're desperately thirsty. But this gets worse. See, I saw that there were sprinklers going on and they were so overwatering their yard that it had come off the sidewalk and it had come into the gutter down the stream and it was at my feet. So what did I do? I got on my hands and knees and and I put one hand on the curb and one hand on the street and I just began to slurp up from the gutter. Thank you very much. Don't judge me. I was a little kid, all right? I had no, I had no, well, speaking of judging me, so I'm telling my kids this story and my nine-year-old Hannah, she says, well, dad, at least I know one thing. I'm smarter than you. Thank you very much. That's true, but come on, when you're thirsty, you'll do whatever it takes to satisfy that thirst, right? I remember being with my grandfather. He was Navy World War II guy. I remember being really thirsty with him one time. And I was like, Grandpa, I'm thirsty. He's like, drink your spit. I'm like, that doesn't work. I tried it. It doesn't work. We can't satisfy it. There, there's something that has to come from the outside to satisfy us. And what is true of us physically is true of us spiritually as well. You were created for longings. You were created for thirst and that that thirst finds itself in our what we enjoy, what we worship. Now, as we looked at last week and and in some way, shape, or form we'll look at every week, the problem is our hearts are crooked, our hearts are bent. And I want to start this morning in the old testament, about four hundred and fifty years before Jesus. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, and then uh, we'll we'll jump to John, chapter 4, but we'll spend most of our time there. But the reason I want to go back 450 years is I want to show that this problem, this problem of trying to satisfy this thirst that God has put in us in other things has been around from the beginning. And it was around 450 years before Jesus, and it's around with a woman at a well in Samaria, and it's around in your hearts and my hearts this morning. And then Jesus is going to lead us. He's going to show there's some barriers to our worship. There's some, there's some ways that we quench our thirst that, that we were not created for. And then he's going to give us a path so that we can have our thirsts quenched. The goal of today and always is, is to not end with a sermon, but to, to build to this table. And once again, remind ourselves of God's gospel of Christ's broken body and his shed blood. In Jeremiah chapter 2, if you have it. Uh, If you have a Bible or turn on your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2 today, Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, I'll pick it up in verse 1. I would love to dive into this more, but let me just, for for time's sake, just set it up a little bit. Again, 450 years before Christ comes, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he mourns and laments at the downfall and the destruction of Judah. But God sends him, and he says this through Jeremiah. I remember, this is God speaking, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest." So God is just saying, I remember back in the day, like, like a wife on her wedding day, like a bride on her wedding day, how you and I, we, we were you were my people, and I was your God, and you loved me, and I loved you, and I haven't stopped, but you've stopped. Something's gone astray in the hearts of the people of Israel. Jump down to verse 5, he says this, what wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. See, sometimes we think about God as just like um, up there, detached from emotion, detached from anything. He's God. He's sovereign. But what God is showing here is He, he cares. He wants to be in relationship. And He's like, what, what did you find wrong in me that you would turn after worthless things? And then God begins to unpack more and more of how He led them and how He loved them and, and how their hearts went astray. And his, his assessment on that is found in verse 13. And then we'll head over to John. But look what he says in verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have, number one, forsaken me. They, they've turned their back on the living God. In spite of all the things he, he has just recounted in the ways that he has shown love to them, provided for them, cared for them, his people have forsaken him. The fountain of of living waters. Now, that, that, those words, living waters, become key, uh, not only in this passage, but in the next passage we're going to look at. And he says, So that's the first thing. They've forsaken the, the source of life, the place where you were designed to, to go to and, and drink from and be satisfied. They said, We don't want that. We'll go our own way, Very thank you very much. And then it gets worse. He says, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a picture of, uh, there, there's on the one hand, this living water. It's fresh, it's clean, it's delicious. I mean, Evian would, would, would love to have that source, but they've turned their back on that and they've dug their own wells. And, and on the side, it's just the mud has gotten in and the, the, the water's become rancid and they're drinking from that. But worse than that, these wells don't even hold the water long-term. They get depleted and they have to dig other wells and, and, and they're just trying to satisfy by their thirst. They've turned their back on God, and they've tried to find their thirst satisfied in something other than God. And this is the story of humanity. This is my story. This is your story. And we just sing, and it's not just that uh, for, for people that don't believe in God. Uh, we just sang the song, Lord, I feel it. My heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We are tempted to go to other wells. And so let's fast-forward 450 years to the book of John in Jesus' encounter with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well. Again, even as I read this, I would just ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word. I'll pick it up in verse 6, and it says, so, Jesus, uh, let's just set this up. Jesus is going through Samaria. We'll see why that's uh, significant in just a moment. And the text says he had to go through Samaria. Now, the question is why? Did the map dictate that? Well, in in one sense, yes. You you went from Jerusalem to Galilee, and in between was Samaria. But if you were a pious Jew, a, a real religious Jew, someone who really wanted to honor God, in that time, you believed that you would go around Samaria, because the jews hated the samaritans it went back 75022 years before When the Samaritans, well, I'm not going to get into that, but they hated each other. It makes anything in our nation's history and our current circumstances and racial tension seem like a blip on the radar screen. They hated them. They wanted nothing to do with them. They didn't want to talk to them. They didn't want to touch anything they touched. They certainly didn't want to touch any Samaritans because they believed the Samaritans were uh, traitors. They were half-breeds. They were, um, in, in any sense of the word, they would call them dogs. Samaritans were the worst. But Jesus went through Samaria. He said he had to go through Samaria. Well, he could have went around. Is it because he was in a hurry? Maybe he was in a hurry. Well, as we'll see, the story unfolds that um, he actually stays there for a few days. So it's not because he's in a hurry. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was about his father's business, and he had a divine appointment at a well. He had to teach us and this woman about living water. And I love this picture, this scene. It shows, it puts on display both the full divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Look at verse 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, so he's tired and he's thirsty, and he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means noon. It was high noon, desert, arid, hot summertime. Uh, He's thirsty. He's come to Jacob's well. He sent his disciples in to go get lunch, and he's by himself at this well. And deep, deep in the well, there's some water, but he has nothing to get the water out. And so he's waiting, and he knows who he's waiting for. And he's just waiting, and eventually he sees her come down the road. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, If you were a, well, if you were just Middle Eastern today, this would strike you as odd. Three things would have struck you as odd, certainly if you're a first century Jew. First of all, a woman is coming out in public. She's from Samaria, and she's coming to draw water. Now, when is she coming to draw water? Pop quiz. Noon. Okay. So if any of you have traveled uh, in the developing world, even today, uh, that is not the time when you do physical labor, that's not the time when the women will come out to get water. Uh, you come out at, before the sun rises. You come out together. It's a, a communal thing. It's, it's something that you do together. If you see anyone, like, like in the summertime, you see someone running down the street in the hot, you're like, you're crazy. You're going to die, and I'm not even going to get out of my air-conditioned car because you're, that's dumb. And here a woman by herself comes out and is coming to get water. And so that should raise some red flags. The next thing would raise flags for a first century Jew as well. Jesus said to her, now Jesus is talking to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds this parenthetical note, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So we, we don 't understand two thousand years later how how big a deal this is. see we think as from our history we think the pharisees they 're the bad guys because we have plenty of Uh, evidence where Jesus is kind of against Pharisees. But the Samaritans, they're the good guys. We have a story about it. Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan. Well, the whole point of that story is the most despised person was doing the thing that honored God the most. And so uh, now this woman says, how is it that you're talking to me? We can't even have this conversation. You've crossed ethnic boundaries. You've crossed, crossed gender boundaries. You're a rabbi. I'm a woman. Rabbis didn't talk to women in public. It was considered Shameful for even Jewish men to talk about the things of God to their wives because the, the status of women was so low in the first century. Jesus lifted up women. The, the, the status that women enjoy in the Western world today it can be traced back to Jesus. And Jesus talks to this woman at a well and she's like, We, we can't even have this conversation. Women's testimony in court wasn't even allowed, it was considered unreliable. I mean, this is how bad it was. And so it's a a Samaritan woman, uh, a Samaritan woman by herself in the middle of the day, and we'll figure out why in just a moment at a well. And Jesus says, Hey, could you give me a drink? And she's like, We can't have this conversation. He goes on, Jesus answered her, If you knew. I love that. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given, he would have given you living water. There it is again. It goes back to Jer- Jeremiah. Now, she wouldn't have known about that because one of the problems that the Samaritans had is that they had cut themselves off from the stream of God's grace and mercy and knowledge and revelation of himself, and they had rejected everything but the first five books of the Bible Uh, But Jesus says, if you only knew, I would give you living water. she's confused. And this is common in John's gospel when, when Jesus talks at first, people are confused, and then he begins to clarify. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's like, You don't even have a cup. How are you going to get this living water? And who do you think you are, after all? I mean, we, we've come here. We, we're, you're Jewish. We're Samaritans. We have these differences. But hey, this is Jacob's well, and Jacob is it's kind of a big deal. His, his livestock drink from this. His children drink from this. This is Jacob's well. God gave this well to Jacob. Do you think you're better than Jacob, if she only knew? Yes, by far better than Jacob but her eyes haven't been opened yet. And he's going to reveal to her some barriers to her worship and to our worship here in just a moment. He says this, verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He says, the first barrier to our worship is you're drinking from the wrong well. It doesn't last. You, you come here day after day, it doesn't last, and that's, that's true spiritually as well. The, the People in Jeremiah's day, they were digging wells and digging wells and going after this God and that God and this thing and that thing, and for a little while it quenched their thirst, but it didn't last, and we all are tempted to that. Our hearts are prone to water, wander, and so we all drink from wells that eventually turn into sand in our mouths. It doesn't last. In our culture, there's, there's a few things that we would say are wells that we go to to drink from. In Parker, Colorado, we, we drink from money, safety, security, comfort. We drink that well. We think that if we have some more money, if we get more comfort, then we will be satisfied. Then we'll have what our hearts desire, what we long for. And so we live in perilous times and in a perilous place because we do, from the world's spe- spectrum, have a lot of money. So we can go from well to well to well to well. And every time we go from one well to the next, it does quench our thirst a little bit. It does feel good a little bit, but it eventually is the stuff of garage cells and landfills. And so we have to keep going. We have to get the next thing and the next thing. I mean, eight and a half years ago, you might have had the hottest new thing. It was the iPhone 3GS, plastic back. You could check your email. Wherever you were at in town, you could, uh, you could go online and look at maps and, and see where you were at. You could even go online. It didn't matter. I mean, the data plans were pretty expensive, but it was amazing, was it not? If anyone brought that garbage out today, you'd be like, what? what's wrong with you? That well has dried up. You've got to move on. And Apple has trained us like Pavlov's dog. Ding, ding, ding. Is every September. I've got to get that. What does it have this time? Does it have an app to teleport me? Because that's what I need now. I've got, I, I don't want the old thing. I need the new thing. We, we, we do this. I mean, this week, I, I've been planning for several, several months. Some of you know the Brennans, and they had us over about six months ago. And he had a wood pellet grill smoker, okay? you know what these things are? I know what these things are because I got my wood pellet smoker grill this week and my wife was making fun of me on Facebook because I went on Pinterest and thank you very much and I got some recipes for smoking some lamb and some wings and I was just going on and on and, and it's amazing and it feels good and uh, a day is coming when that will be in a garage sale and that will be in a landfill. I love taking my children to the dump. I'm like, look, there's a doll. There's a bicycle. All these things were once sought after to satisfy people's souls. And it won't work. The, the, the other thing in our culture, and, and thank you very much, Hollywood has told us, if you just go to the well of relationships and sex, if you just find someone, thank you, Jerry Maguire, that will, completes you, then you'll be satisfied, then you won't have thirst. And so we, we think that Hollywood is right, and we say, I, I need to go to that well. And, and if you go to that well thinking, my spouse or that person is only there to satisfy my thirst. When you aren't satisfied, what do you do? You say, I've got to dig another well. I gotta go to another place I gotta try something else because here's the thing your spouse does not complete you my wife doesn't complete me you know how I know my wife is the one for me because I married her could have been, been dozens of other women same for her she doesn't complete me I can't satisfy her soul. I sin against her. Marriage is the union of two sinners. And so it's foolish for us to think that if we just have the right relationship or the right sexual experience, then we'll be satisfied. And so we dig wells, we dig wells, we dig wells, we drink sand. And then the last one I think that's just prevalent in our culture would be the the well of, of status and success, right? if we just climb the ladder high enough, if we just go far enough, and if it's not us, if our children do that. If our children are in all the right classes, are in all the right sports, and, all, and, and succeed in all the ways that we failed, then we'll get validation, then we'll get happy. And it's just this crazy hamster wheel we're on from one thing to the next. And, and God is telling the woman at the well, he's telling the people in Jerusalem, and he's telling us today, those don't last. They're good things. Notice I mentioned all the things I mentioned are good things, but they were never designed, never created to bear up under the weight and expectations of our worship. Eventually they crush, or they'll crush us. So he says, it doesn't last. The well you're coming to doesn't last. He says there's a second thing that's a barrier to your worship. If we're going to be gospel-centered in our worship, look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, "Uh, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, Jesus is, is, is gracious to her, but I love her response. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> you think? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, here's here's the second thing: is that that will always quench our worship. Will always squelch us. Will always be a barrier. It's unrepentant, unconfessed sin. It, 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 well, we, we are fooling ourselves if we think if we can just show up in one place for one hour of one week and, and think we're going to have this amazing time of worship with God, and, and you're like, well, maybe I just need to go to a church that has uh, a lot of fog machines and lasers and a really high-powered band, then I'll connect with God. That might be your thing, but that is not what's going to be your connection to worship. We'll, we'll never have a fog machine in here, by the way, but... Um, I did say before that I'll never pull up on a Harley and start a sermon series, but then Nick said, you could use my Harley, there's a garage door, so maybe I will, so I'll just take that off the table. Uh, But uh, our worship will always be quenched when there's unconfessed, unrepentant, willing sin, and we hide. We hide from each other, and we hide from God, and Jesus is saying, you can't hide from God. By the way, he knows everything. He knows her whole history, and that's what's so amazing about the gospel. The gospel says that uh, he knows us, and yet he still loves us. But she's been digging at different wells. She's had five husbands, and the one she's with right now is not her husband. He's like, you're basically just exchanging sex for rent, and it's not going to work, and you've got to turn from that. Says so, See, in the Old Testament, we have these two great witnesses to these realities. On the one hand, we have Job. Job had everything the world wanted. He he had status, he had relationship, he had a great family, he had health, he had wealth, and it got stripped all from him. And at the end of Job, Job says, God, you are enough. I've got nothing, but you're enough. And he's satisfied in God. And on the other end in the Old Testament, we have Solomon. Solomon had 600 wives. Solomon was the most wealthy man on the planet on that time. Solomon planted forests. He built palaces. He threw parties that people wrote songs about. Uh, Solomon had everything. And at the end of his life, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and he talks about chasing after status and chasing after stuff and chasing after relationships. And you know what Solomon says? He says, it's all vanity, vanity, vanity. It's meaningless. Solomon's been all the way down that road. And he says, at the in it, it's a dead end. It's meaningless apart from God. And we stand somewhere in between and we say, well, I don't want to be like Job, even though Job is saying, God is enough. Say, I want to be like Solomon. And none of us will go down that road far enough. None of us will be like Solomon. So we believe if we could just get a little farther, then we'll be satisfied. And Solomon's saying, it's not going to work. You weren't made for this. And she was not made for this, so she's gone from husband to husband to husband, and now from man to man. Now we see why she comes out in the middle of the day on a hot day. She's trying to avoid the scorn and the shame of the town people. Remember, in that time, adultery was punishable by death. She's trying to avoid the death sentence. And so she comes out. She doesn't want to see anyone. She comes to this well, and she's like, oh, great, there's someone sitting at the well. I hope he doesn't talk to me. Well, of course he won't talk to me. He's a man. I'm a woman. And she's just got her head down. And he's like, hey, can you give me a drink? And she hears the accent. He's Jewish. Oh, my goodness. This guy's talking to me. Um, he's Jewish. I'm a woman. Um, and then he says, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. It's like, that's right. And he just lays her life out. And he's like, I know everything. She says, sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. And she's like, while we're talking about my adultery, let's talk about worship. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem it's the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He says you have a a third barrier to your worship, and it's just ignorance. So there's no knock on that. I've, I've been to a lot of churches where they don't teach much on the depth and the character and the nature of God. But he said, you cannot worship what you do not know. And unfortunately, again, we live in a time that actually champions you just coming up with whatever you think about reality. But, but Jesus is saying, you can't worship what you don't know. You can't worship a figment of your imagination. We live in a time that wants to strip Jesus of all the things that make him worthy of worship. <laughs> So we say, uh, we, we want a Jesus that's a little bit nicer, <clears throat> a little bit kinder, a little bit whiter, a little bit more like us, a little bit more associated with our political party. <clears throat> Does anyone have any water for me here? Dying here. Okay, I'll just move on. We're good. I'll take it. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, I've tried out of the gutter before, so don't worry about <laughs> it. This will be no problem. I've survived, lived to tell about. It. So am I right though? Like it's okay to talk about Jesus if you're talking about the Jesus who's you know, just kind of walks around patting kids on the head. If you bump into him he burps out a proverb. Uh, But you you don't want the Jesus of the Bible. You don't want the Jesus that gets revealed. We want to put on the coffee cup and the Christian t-shirt, the the nice things about Jesus, but no one's putting uh, the the revelation Jesus on on their t-shirt. No one's putting the Jesus with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth and the streets filling with blood from his righteous wrath and judgment. No one wants that Jesus. But as we strip Jesus of his righteousness, as we strip Jesus of his holiness and his supremacy and his authority, and we bring Jesus down, and we make him a bearded Mr. Rogers, and we say to the world, here's Jesus, and we wonder why no one wants to worship Jesus. I mean, we wonder, and churches have tried this, like, what will make Jesus more palatable? What will make people come to our church? And so we strip him of his, all the things that make him fierce. We say, come, worship Jesus. And you're like, I don't want to worship a bearded Mr. Rogers, that's not a Jesus worthy of my worship. And I say, good, because that's not Jesus. And so, if we're going to be gospel centered in our worship, one of the things we're going to do each week is we're going to go verse by verse through the Bible. And there's going to be things that are like, man, that's, Jesus has some sharp edges. As, as C.S. Lewis would say in the Chronicles of Narnia, to, in that story where Aslan is the Jesus figure, he's not a tame lion. He's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. So we've got these barriers to our worship. And we want to put forth the real Jesus so that she can really see him. We, we give ourselves away to other wells. We, we have unrepentant, unconfessed sin. We, we, we uh, are ignorant. Some say, well, you know, we just go after that because our passions got a hold of us. You know, ever hear that like as an excuse for sin? That that person is just too passionate. And again, I love what C.S. Lewis would say to that. It's not that we're too passionate. We're not passionate enough. See, you were created for passionate worship, and God is worthy of our worship. He says this, Lewis says, in the weight of glory. This is a very common, uh, very often cited passage. In fact, a couple of my friends and I, whenever we read this passage in a book or hear it in a sermon, we're required to like text it to someone else and say, hey, this illustration, the mud pie illustration that's coming up, ladies and gentlemen, it's overused, but since we're a church plant, it's the first time I'm using it here. Um, here's what Lewis says about our passions. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go make on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea and then he concludes like with this we are far too easily pleased don't be so easily pleased Don't be easily pleased by the stuff of this world and and the temptations of this world. You were made for passionate worship. and So Jesus begins to set us free on that path. If you remove those barriers, verse 23, he says, "...the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth." He, he just says, our worship is meant to have inflamed hearts and inflamed minds. Now, we have different dispositions. Some people, they, they, you know, the way you worship is like, you, you'll go home and write a poem. Like, I've never written a poem. I'm not ever going to read you a poem. I don't write poems. But that's how some people will connect. And they're like, oh, we don't need books. We don't need uh, systematic theology. And, and other people are like, no, we, we need that. And, and what you're doing is wrong. And what Jesus is saying, our hearts and our minds are, are to come together in worship. And so uh, we are all theologians, by the way. Did you know that? Like, you all have thoughts about God. The question is, are you a good theologian? Are you a heretic? We're all theologians. Every, every person created in God's image is a theologian. The question is, are they thinking rightly about God? And we're all worshipers. You will worship someone or something. The question is, and then this passage is, is what you're worshiping worthy of your worship? And so Jesus would inflame our hearts and our minds in spirit and in truth that we would be passionate about our worship at Redemption Parker. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So, so she, he has this conversation. It's the longest conversation in the Bible that Jesus has with the person. And uh, he kind of works some things out, and he tells her what's going to happen and all these things. And she says, well, that's confusing. Uh, when Messiah comes, he's going to just kind of work that all out for us. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, that just happened. By the way, I'm the guy. And in that moment, her eyes are open. She sees Jesus for who he really is, and her heart is set on fire. And she, well, look what she does. She goes, verse 27, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Of course, they were, and it's a Samaritan woman at that. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. The very reason she came out in the middle of the day leaves her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then we don't have time, but the disciples themselves are confused. And I love that just because the gospel is for lost people and for disciples as well. They're confused. Jesus helps them out. But uh, that's another sermon for another time. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. And because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So she's so transformed by the gospel. She's been avoiding the glances, avoiding the conversations, avoiding the people, uh, but now she sees Jesus for who she really is, and she, for who he really is, and she just goes, and she's like, hey, you've got to check this out. I know you think I'm a terrible person, but you've got to meet this guy. He's amazing. He's awesome. He could be the Messiah of the world, and they come out. See, when we are transformed by worship, we can't help being agents of transformation outside these walls. When we see Jesus for who he really is and worship, worship him as such, the world gets changed. And so the question for us here is, as we wrap this up, is what barriers do you have? What wells are you currently digging? What keeps you up at night? What, what dreams do you have that if I just had that thing or that relationship or that status symbol, what is it that keeps you up at night? See, a lot of these things, notice, are are good things, right? So for the Christian, what we can do then is roll those up in worship. You and I can enjoy a good steak and a glass of wine, but it doesn't have to be all about the steak and the wine. We can say, Lord, I deserve sand and dirt, and now I'm eating steak and wine, and, and you are worthy of my worship. See, we can roll it up. We can enjoy our marriages, but they don't have to become our God's. We can say, God, you have given me a good gift. The, uh, my wife is a good gift to me, but she's not my God. So we roll that up into worship. We can enjoy status and success and, and even money, but at the end of the day we say to God, money is not my God. You are my God. And so we roll that up into worship. So maybe you have some unrepentant, unconfessed sin. We're, we're going to sing another song or Lauren Daigle's going to lead us in a song. And uh, in that time, maybe you just need to do some business with God before we come to the communion table. Maybe it's just ignorance and, and um, you, you just need to put yourself under the stream of God's revelation and mercy of himself. You can't worship what you don't know, and God hasn't said, just guess. Just guess what I'm like. He's revealed himself to us through his son Jesus and through his word. And so you maybe just make a commitment. I'll, I'll start with the paragraph a day just to start to get to know Jesus. Now here at Redemption Parker, there's two things going to happen organically and organizationally. Organically, worship is just going to flow out of your life however you are created. So some of you are runners and you connect with God like running a marathon. It's crazy. Most of us aren't like that, but I, I bet one or two of you are like that. That's how you connect with God. Other people are just, hey, I need to sit on a beach and just look at the water, and when I do that, I connect with God. Other people are good food and good friends, and when you're in there, you sense the presence of God among you. And so there's these things that will stir your affections for God. That just happens organically. There's nothing in redemption bylaws that says Mark is going to um, you know, listen to worship music on his own, and that's how he's going to start. No, uh, it just happens because our hearts are inflamed with God. Now, organizationally, we're going to do some things that try to put those things in place. So we're going to sing gospel-centered songs. Notice the songs we sang are not just because they're catchy tunes, but they resound with the gospel. They they remind us of the truth of who God is. We're going to go through the the Bible verse by verse, and we're going to be unapologetic about who God says He is because we don't think God needs a PR agent. He's handled the universe just fine himself and he'll continue to do so. So we want to get to know God. We're going to come to the communion table each week because each week as we take the bread and, and dip it in the wine, we're reminded of the gospel that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and that's going to fuel our worship. And then we're going to give our energies and efforts to creating gospel communities places where we get into each other's homes. And next week, that's what we'll talk about. But where we get into each other's homes and get into each other's lives and we get to know one another and encourage one another and use our gifts that God has given us for the building up of the body. So that's what we're gonna do. At this time, let me just close us in prayer and then we'll sing this song and I'll come and lead us in communion. Sing one more song and uh, then you'll be free to give them heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us this day. God, I, I know that there are many wells that I go to that ultimately do not satisfy. Lord, there will be uh, 100,000 advertisements between now and next week that will tell me about different wells that will satisfy me, but only you do, Jesus. So Lord, thank you for this time. Something profound happens when the saints come together and worship together together We read about it in the book of Acts where your spirit empowers us, your spirit encourages us, your spirit sends us out. And so we thank you for this time of corporate worship. Lord, tune our hearts to you. Even now, prepare our hearts as we sing this last song to come to your communion table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.